0: This is Ron Oral, and I'm super excited today to be speaking with Patricia Alasker, partner at Davies, Ward, Phillips, and Weinberg. She is a top advisor on M&A and activism and advises both activists and companies. In 2012, she acted as lead counsel for Bill Ackman's pretty famous Pershing Square Capital Management contest in a kind of a watershed campaign that changed the board and management of Canadian Pacific Railway, a contest that really cemented activism in Canada for the years to follow. And Patricia is also an adjunct professor at Osgoode Hall Law School at York University, where she teaches an advanced business law workshop on mergers and acquisitions. So thank you, Patricia, for taking the time.
1: Yes, happy to be here.
0: Okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit about your backstory for a minute, which I think is pretty fascinating. There aren't many women attorneys focused on activism and m and even today. And when you first started practicing m and law, there were even fewer women working on it. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah. So actually, I'll just comment before getting into the women in activism point on your reference to Pershing Square and Canadian Pacific. So I wish I could tell you that that mandate was part of my grand career plan to become a woman in activism. But it was really just a very happy accident when I picked up the phone. And Bill Ackman was on the other end. And of course, that was in a time before caller ID. But it is true. I mean, women are rare in the activism space and they're rare in the MA space as well. Whether that's the hours, the intensity, the machismo associated with the practice, I don't know, but I will say it's changing. And the women I know in this space are fantastic. They're cool, they're calm, they're strategic, and they stay above the fray.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I feel like perhaps there are more women in the M&A advisory then there are kind of focusing on the activism subset of M and A, but I have seen a few of them pop up here and there. Do You get that sense too that there are now more women working on activist things, either for companies or for activists.
1: There absolutely are. I mean, you can still count them on maybe two hands, but that is uh, nine more than there were ten years ago. So,
0: <laughs> all right. So the other thing that our listeners might be interested in hearing about is that you advise both activists and companies. Now, correct me if I have this wrong. Something I think is more common for attorneys in Canada, as opposed to something that I do know a lot about, which is, you know, that's not the case here in the U.S., where the market is fairly bifurcated with uh, certain law firms advising only activists and other law firms advising only companies. And I know proxy listers often work both sides of activism and advising activists and companies, but it seems to me like, you know, advising an activist can help when you later advise a company and vice versa. So I guess two questions. One, is it more common in Canada for legal advisors to advise with activists and companies? And second, do you feel like that it helps you? I suspect it probably helps you.
1: Yes, you're right on both counts. I mean, the the bifurcation of the US market is a bit of a quirky American thing, if I can bring a different lens to the, the question. I think in the rest of the world, lawyers are not really expected to be ideologically committed, you know, to one side, Of the fight or the other. And I come at activism like I do any other mandate. I'm just trying to help a client find a workable solution to a problem. On the question of, you know, are clients wise to choose somebody that works both sides of the street? Absolutely. You know, they're very clearly advantaged by having somebody at the table who's got real insight into the perspective of the other side and the tricks and tools that they might employ. So I think smart clients get it and it's a real advantage.
0: Yeah, no, that's interesting. I always think, of, I mean, it's not exactly related, but when I talk to media relations people at companies, if I know that that person has worked as a journalist before, I feel like he, that person has a better understanding of the kind of things I'm looking for and expectations for how the article might show up. So anyways, I totally agree. I think that that's a, an advantage. And you see yeah. sometimes in the U.S., the lawyer leaves the law firm representing companies, and goes and works for the law firm representing activists, <laughs> That's how you see that switch. They kind of join the dark side, depending on which side you think is the dark side. So anyways.
1: Right. Or they go to a firm that kind of secretly has both sides of the practice. So yeah, yes. I, I think this will change. It changed in hostile M&A, which used to be strictly done by the rogue law firms to today when it's absolutely mainstream business. This
0: that is change. so true. And there's it's funny because a lot of these law firms in the U.S. that is strictly advise only companies in response to activist hedge funds, they'll advise a hostile bidder. I mean, they're all advising hostile bidders or unsolicited bidders, depending on how you want to look at it. So I wanted to talk about hostile bids. And I just wrote an article about this. And I noticed that there's a lot of these kind of unsolicited offers taking place in Canada. I mean, there's a number in the US too, but considering Canada's size, I was surprised to see the number of unsolicited bids there. And I'm, I guess I wanted to get your thoughts on why we see so many hostile bids in this kind of volatile market. And it seems there are a lot in the mining sector in Canada. For example, uh, one that we've been following quite closely, the deal is Glencore, that big thermal coal producer, has a two-part hostile bid to buy Canadian tech resources. And uh, so we've been following that fairly closely. doesn't seem to me like that will succeed, but we'll see what happens there. But I don't know. What do you think about my thesis that there's a lot of unsolicited bids? Yeah,
1: so I read your article, by the way, great article. So I mean, there is obviously a slowdown in M&A right now. But generally, in the mining sector, activity continues apace. And I think it's because that industry has its own set of drivers. People are propelled by mineral scarcity to buy production if they can't find it in the ground. In the mining space, unlike in a lot of industries, size is an advantage for its own sake. You know, the theory being that size will attract more generalist investors shares are a popular and acceptable form of currency so the fact that the credit markets are tightening is not an impediment and then what we're now seeing and this is kind of fresh impetus is the hunt for critical minerals like lithium mm-hmm. and you may not have noticed this because the deal is small but just this week a hostile acquisition of a company called alpha lithium was announced by a spanish company called check petrol so a mm-hmm. small deal but definitely part of the trend we're seeing and so Why are there seemingly more hostile overtures these days? Well, I think the equity markets being kind of in falling mode and in flux, there's this increasing mismatch between what buyers are prepared to pay and what target management thinks the assets worth. So one effective way to bridge that gap is to announce an intention to make a hostile bid for the target. And then the market and the other shareholders, you know, the the hope is will force target management to the negotiating table. I think buyers do that because it works.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I get a lot of calls from our reporters at the deal that are tackling these bids, and they want to know: is it an? Should I call it an unsolicited bid, or should I call it a hostile bid? And it's funny. I was yeah. talking to this one banker recently, and he said that the from a company perspective, every unsolicited bid, in his view, is a hostile bid, even if it's a private bear hug letter and that the bidder, you know, doesn't plan to ever take their offer public, even if it's rejected by the company. But I'm sure like the people that make the offers, they don't like to be viewed as hostile. They prefer to be viewed as an unsolicited bidder. It's all in the nomenclature. (laughs) Right. No, absolutely. Of course, if Carl Icahn has a hostile bid with a change of control, slate of directors, and a tender offer, that's definitely a hostile bid. So Okay. So I wanted to switch gears for a minute and talk a bit about a couple of related interesting developments I've seen in this year's proxy season that involves kind of two-part settlements and unusual bylaw amendments and things like that. So I know you work for Legion Partners, the activist fund out of California, and what ended up the, uh, the activist fund needing not one, but two settlements at Primo Water, which is a water dispenser company. And So basically, the water dispenser company disqualified Legion's candidates from consideration, all four of them, which was kind of crazy. And then it reinstated two of them, so only two remained disqualified. And then Legion sued in an Ontario court to get the other two candidates on the ballot for consideration. And essentially, it worked. Primo did this kind of what I call a preliminary settlement or pre-settlement, where they settled a lawsuit to let all four of Legion's candidates stand for election. Then later, Primo settled again, this time it was more traditional settlement, to include two of Legion's candidates to the board, including one that it had rejected from consideration initially. Of course, Legion dropped its proxy contest as part of this ultimate settlement. So a settlement to make way for another settlement, so to speak. So broadly, uh, relatedly, I'm seeing a lot of companies expand their advance notice bylaws for what activists have to submit when they are nominating director candidates. And then they are disqualifying, this is some kind of new development this year I haven't seen really before, they're disqualifying dissident director candidates, just like we saw at Prima Water, based on these broader bylaws. I just wrote about yesterday about two REITs in the U.S. that disqualified dissident directors candidates based on recently expanded bylaws, the activists sued, and now the two REITs are merging. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen there. But I guess my question is, do you agree, Patricia, about one, that we're seeing a lot of expansions of these bylaws? And tell us a little bit about what happened at Primo in terms of the settlements there.
1: You've got your facts absolutely right on Primo. It was a two-part settlement. The first part really being to settle litigation that was locked in on a timeline. So it had to be addressed by a certain date. And so that litigation got settled on the last possible date. You know, the, the case was before the court and had its own schedule. So that's what drove the timing. And because it was, I won't get into the technicalities, but because the settlement arose by virtue of a settlement of an offer that was delivered at the same time the case was launched to the Canadian issue, it did not encompass the broader discussions that ultimately ensued and led to the settlement of the overall proxy contest. But in terms of the significance of Primo, I mean, it's really kind of the Canadian echo of this trend that you noted that has begun in the United States with the introduction of the universal proxy card rules, that ironically were designed to facilitate shareholder democracy and improve competition for board seats. But as you know, many issuers saw this as an opportunity to amend the advanced bylaws to make them very difficult to comply with and to impose disclosure requirements that exceed by miles anything actually required by the law to be provided by nominees, Mm -hmm. and those provisions had been used by companies to disqualify nominees, and Primo was the first time that we saw that happen in Canada. The challenge here, and and then probably this bears out in the U.S. as well, I mean, securities commissions are not engaged on this issue, the issue of misuse of bylaws. And so it requires a really deep-pocketed or truly determined shareholder like Legion will bear the cost and the risk of litigation to fight back. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a real risk that these bylaws will continue to be misused because not many shareholders will take on that cost or risk. Now, in Canada, historically, because bylaw changes require shareholder approval, ISS has played a bit of a policing role and they have been able to stem the tide of, you know, abusive amendments. But as ISS just made clear uh, this week or late last week, I think, in the the Primo situation, it is not going to be applying its Canadian standards to advance notice bylaws by Canadian public companies that Mm -hmm. also happen to be U.S. domestic issuers. Uh. I mean, that's not a vast bucket of companies, but it's some of the larger, more important Canadian companies that also constitute U.S. domestic issuers. So we're in a situation where in Canada, where you can't get timely access to the courts as you can in the U.S., there may need to be a regulatory response here.
0: So basically, ISS has this kind of recommendation policy for Canadian issuers, but not ones that are both issuers in Canada and the U.S.
1: Yeah, and I think up until the Primo proxy contest, people would have thought that even in this situation, the ISS would apply its Canadian policy, but it has made clear that it will not.
0: Okay, so one of the interesting things, at least I saw, and maybe that this is kind of a wonky view of the settlement, but I'm kind of curious to see if we'll see more settlements that have these kind of provisions, is that you guys included in the in the agreement, which you know got those two directors installed in Primo Water, was also a provision requiring Primo to change its bylaws partly back to what they were, tell me if I got this correct, before Legion started agitating. So there was kind of a, a you know, part of the agreement was to reverse some of these expansive bylaw provisions. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right, and and you know this is one aspect of the settlement that really struck a blow for shareholder democracy, a bit like the Massimo settlement. So, although the litigation and the proxy contest were settled before the matter went to court, it was definitely a term of the settlement that these problematic provisions in the bylaw be amended. And two main things were changed. One, although the questionnaire survived. The permitted scope of the questionnaire was limited to questions that elicited information actually required by law to be disclosed to shareholders, which is a very defined and finite subset of the typical questions. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the company's ability to ask follow up questions mm-hmm. was eliminated. So, you know, this was
0: demanded the follow up questions fairly rapidly, like five days or something. So, you yeah, know, some common yeah. question it would be uh, not a lot of time to turn that around.
1: Well, exactly, and so that change, you know, I think was a great
0: outcome for opponents of these bylaws. Yeah, no, be is interesting whether we'll see more of kind of these expansive bylaws in the years to come, or will some of these lawsuits by activists and settlements to reverse bylaws act as a kind of cooling force on, on the huge bylaw expansion of 2023? Okay, I want to shift to another subject related to activism that I find quite interesting. And I'm curious to hear your view on this. And just anecdotally, I don't have data to back this up, but it seems to me that activists are getting better candidates over the years and more diverse candidates. And obviously, there's a, a lot of pressure on companies to diversify board of directors. And so I guess I wanted to know if you're seeing this in Canada and wondering if you still feel like activists have a disadvantage in that it's more difficult for them to get candidates to go on their slate because those candidates do not want to have a, the stigma of being on an activist slate. There was a situation, sorry, I spoke to an advisor recently in the US who said that it still is very difficult for activists to find qualified candidates because those candidates, most people like ex-CEOs and top, I don't know, cybersecurity experts, you know, do not want the stigma of being on an activist slate
1: yeah so let me I think there were two kind of questions embedded in that. Let me address them both. So I absolutely agree, again, anecdotally that we are seeing activist slates composed of higher quality candidates and more diverse candidates. And I think that's just become a necessity because as we see competition for board seats, I think the focus has really tightened on how does nominee A compare to nominee B? Mm-hmm. And as an activist, in order to succeed, you've got to at the very least match and probably exceed. The credentials of the candidates you're looking to displace. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, you know, given the importance of the governance community vote, you are unlikely to succeed, you know, if you're not putting together an appropriately diverse slate. And in some ways, I think activists have been more proactive about achieving diversity on their slates than many issuers. But on the stigma issue, so you're right. I think it has abated significantly since certainly in Canada, the days of Pershing Square and Canadian Pacific, where the stigma was massive, but it's still not, you know, a particularly comfortable experience being on an activist slate. And there's, you know, the risk of litigation and character attacks and people rummaging through old press clippings and you know your trash. So I, I still think it's the case that activists will be met by the response, you know, call me when you reach a settlement. I just don't want to put myself and my family through this. And we did see a bit of that on Legion as well, where one of the rejected nominees put forward by Legion was the subject of quite a challenging attack by the company. And a lot of people just won't take that on.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting that I was talking to this one banker today who works in activist situations, and we were discussing this phenomena of overboarding, I think is the way to describe it, or also relatedly placeholder candidates, and that sometimes activists will nominate more candidates than there are seats available. And sometimes they will have nominated candidates and then switch them out later on with, I guess, the activists consider better candidates as they find people that are exactly the ones they want against the company. And, you know, there's a question from the company point of view that there should be some sort of litigation related to these over nominating or placeholder nominees that are replaced later. And he's had an interesting point, which is some activist backed nominees are happy to participate if there's a settlement. If they feel like they can get on in a settlement with the company, but they don't want to have to go the distance and potentially lose a contest, or guess that when it gets to that definitive proxy statement point, then it becomes much more hostile. And so that person is like, well, you can have me, uh, you know, assuming that you you get a settlement, but you can't if this goes a distance, because that's when a lot of mud gets thrown around, so to speak. So uh, anyways, it'll be interesting to see how activists get more candidates on their slate. So anyways... We've been listening to the Activist Investor Today podcast and we've been speaking to Patricia Alasker, partner at Davies Ward. Thanks, Patricia, for taking the time. Thank you.